Shalom, Shalom. My name is Ariel Ben Lyman Hanavi. I'm delighted to hear that you are drawn to the Jewish root that supports the grafted-in branches. You know, Torah is central to properly understand and perform the will of Hashem, that is, God. It is crucial for us to understand theologically that the primary purpose in Hashem's giving of the Torah as a way of making someone forensically righteous only achieves its goal when the person, by faith, accepts that Yeshua, Jesus, is the promised Messiah spoken about therein. Welcome to Parashat Breshit, in the beginning. The address is Breshit, Genesis, chapter 1, verse 1, through chapter 6, verse 8. The reading date is for Shabbat, and I am the author, Torah teacher Ariel ben Lyman. The written commentary was updated on November 4th of 2005. Note that all quotations are taken from the complete Jewish Bible translation by David H. Stern. Jewish New Testament Publications Incorporated, unless otherwise noted. We're going to begin with the opening blessing for the Torah, and because this is the beginning parasha that we're going to be studying, I'm going to make it special by actually chanting the opening blessing for the Torah. Here on out, I will only recite the blessing for each opening portion, but because we um, want to create a seamless transition between the closing of the book of Devarim, Deuteronomy, and the opening of the book of Breshit, Genesis. Just like if you'll recall at Parashat Vazot Habracha, at the end of Devarim, Deuteronomy, then we not only read the last few verses of the book of Devarim, the last few verses of that last chapter, but we also turned and read the opening few pesukim, the opening few verses of um, Breshit, of Genesis here. And if you'll recall, then chanting the closing blessing was something that um, that I uh, provided for the uh, the podcast listening audience. So, to create a seamless transition, let's go ahead and chant the opening blessing for the Torah for the first parasha of our reading schedule, okay? Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu melech ha'olam Asher bachar banu mikol ha'amim V'natan lanu et Torato. Baruch atah Adonai, noten ha-Torah. Amen. Blessed are you, O Lord, our God, King of the universe. You have selected us from among all the peoples and have given us your Torah. Blessed are you, Lord, giver of the Torah. Amen. Well, welcome to the first parasha, the first portion in a study on the Parashot Hashavua, the weekly portions. Now, this study is not designed to be an, ex- uh, an extensive commentary on the weekly Sabbath readings. Um, although this first installment to Genesis um, will be somewhat lengthy for foundational sake. Now, it's interesting that I say it will be lengthy, because if you notice, the commentary is only seven pages in written form, and we're probably looking at maybe 30 or 40 minutes in audio. Originally, when I wrote these commentaries, they were part of a Torah study that I had... um, that I had started uh, when I was stationed in Seoul, South Korea, back in 19... I want to say it was probably 98 or 99, somewhere around there, about 10 years ago. And what happened is um, the studies were 
generally maybe three, four pages long. So they were, you know, really just uh, outlines that I used to um, help the group facilitate a study on the weekly Torah portions. Well, as it turned out, uh, Hashem led me to actually start writing full-blown commentaries for each weekly portion, and that's why they started growing in length. And so this one is seven pages in length, and I state at the beginning that this is going to be longer. But what's uh, humorous to me now is knowing that I've written commentaries that are 40, 50 pages in length, uh, and on the weekly tour portion, some of them are 20 or so pages in length. So, you know, I state up here this is going to be a little longer for foundational sake. In reality, in comparison to um, many of the other ones, this is actually quite short. So I went ahead and left that sentence in there. I debated whether or not I should even just take that out of the written commentary or not, but I thought I'd leave it in there for nostalgia's sake. Um, but in reality, these are just um, thumbnail sketches of the weekly Torah portions. I, I, I urge you to study the Torah portions with um, with diligence in mind, with, with, with an insatiable uh, curiosity in mind. You've, you've got to want to know what God is speaking to us and saying to us through every single Torah portion. So for that reason, I recommend a few things. One of the most obvious recommendations I can make for you is that you read the Torah portion each week. Genesis 1, verse 1 through chapter 6, verse 8, is not a lot of reading for you. What, five, six chapters? Read that first. Pray about what the Holy Spirit should show to you uh, through this Torah portion. Allow God's work to speak to you. After all, it is quick, powerful, and sharper than any two-edged sword. It is alive by the power of the Spirit. The words of God are alive. So allow them to speak to your spirit as you read them. And then as you pray and you speak to God, dialogue with Him. Dialogue with Him about the text. Ask him um, what important nuggets uh, he would like uh, for you to gain an, an understanding of, a deeper uh, uh, walk, uh, and deepen your walk, I should say, with him through the study of the Torah portions. Begin to dialogue with him. Talk back with him. Uh, uh, you should be in dialogue with God on a, on a, really on a daily basis, but if you can't manage that, at least on a weekly basis. And these Torah portions are just designed to maybe facilitate some type of a, um, a disciplined or regular study. Besides, it's helpful to know that Jewish people the world over, and these days I'm happy to add quite a few Christians, are actually engaging in the study of the exact same portion that we are also engaging our study in. Now, of course, if the reader or the listener desires a more in-depth study on the subject that then I provide, then I always suggest that you dig a little deeper for yourselves with the aid of what? Maybe a good Christian commentary or obviously a good rabbinical commentary is going to be helpful. Why do I make the slight comparison between the two? Well, within Christian circles, not a lot of um, not a lot of practical commentary exists on the Torah portions because of the prevailing Christian view that the Torah has been relegated to um, I don't really know what status they relegate it to. I, I know that Christian theology suppresses the Torah on a practical level so as to not allow um, daily implementation uh, of, for instance, the ceremonial and the civil aspects of the Torah. It's no secret that the Christian church does not espouse to um, keeping the Sabbath, keeping kosher, keeping uh, the festivals, wearing tzitzit, uh, saying the set time prayers, um, many of the things that mark Israel out um, as a distinct people, the church would not risk their reputation of looking Jewish if they were to walk into these things. So, you know, in many senses, I can't blame them. It's 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 a uh, 
it, it's a um, it's a difficult thing to turn your whole lifestyle around to to mimic the Hebraic lifestyle. Um, it, it's a it really is. Um, it's a big commitment. So you know, if if you are going to read these commentaries with the idea, uh, with the intent of turning your life around and and starting a new Hebraic walk with God, well then, I say buckle up because it's going to be one wild ride. At any rate, any additional biblical source that's going to cause a student to further investigate the truths of God's word for themselves. I firmly believe is a good source, whether Christian or Jewish. I don't. I don't really um, play favorites on one side or the other. Although, again, when it comes to studying the Torah for its practical application, you're going to find more resources on the rabbinic side than you are on the Christian side, unfortunately. Now, ultimately, we are all individually responsible to, as it says in Second Timothy 2:15 from the KJV, quote, "Study to show ourselves approved unto God." Right? God wants us to study. God gave his word so that we might grow into the grace and to the knowledge of his son, Yeshua. We've got to feed ourselves. And we've got to rely on the Spirit to open our eyes to understand the wonderful things that his Torah has for us. Sometimes this study requires a little what I call net fishing. Now, what this means is you have to lower your net into the uh, waters, scoop up a lot of fish and other things as well. And then when you pull the net into your boat and you you know you you begin to sort out what you caught and what you're going to keep and what you're not going to keep you know you're going to throw out the things that you don't need because whenever you scoop up your bring your your net you know down to the water and bring it back up scoop up fish you're also going to be scooping up junk or you're going to be scooping up fish that you shouldn't be eating so sometimes you have to sort out that what you're going to keep that what you're not i typically do this by like let's say i want to study um any one particular topic. Let's say I'm studying about the Sabbath. Okay, let's use it as an example. If I want to do that, I may go grab, say, five rabbinic sources on the Sabbath and five Christian sources. And I will pour through these sources, whether they be internet sources, books, audio, tapes, CDs, videos, etc. I'll pour through all the information, and then what I'll begin to do is carefully sort out that which um, lines up with what I understand the Word of God to be teaching, and throw out that which seems to be uh, either irrelevant or contradictory to what the Word of God is teaching. And that's what I call net fishing, where you just you, you, you pour through multiple resources, and then you pray and you discern which resources are valuable and which resources aren't as valuable. I don't typically throw out resources that don't hit the mark, because they may be valuable at another time in my life, or now they're time of research, so uh, especially if I've paid good money for the resource, I may just let it sit on my bookshelf for a little while until I can come back and visit it later. So that's what I mean by net fishing. As a Torah teacher, I recommend that the student do some collective research on his own. Compile information from many different sources, again, Christian and Jewish, and then carefully pray about what is helpful for him to foster spiritual growth. And then, as I recommend, put the rest on the back burner for a while. And what I mean by that is use what's pertinent to you and check back on the other stuff from time to time. You never know what Hashem may uh, use from your bookshelf. You never know when he may refresh your walk with old material. Okay, When I say old material, I'm even including my own. For instance, I just mentioned that this commentary was updated on November 4th of 2005. Well, um... As it turns out, years from now, perhaps this this is this. Well, I just dated my resource, right? My own commentary is dated. You know, maybe ten years from now, I may go back and revisit this commentary and look at it, and 
hopefully, prayerfully, I will have grown uh, since then. And so I can always use older material to to enhance my current walk with God um, and continue to update the material as, as, as needed. Or I can always find older books that were written on topics that you know I may not have um, had a chance to expose myself to. For instance, I picked up a book on prayer um, by Charles Stanley, well-known Christian preacher. Okay, and this book was written in the uh, 70s, I think 70s or the 80s. Here was here was this book, and I picked it up by the way, maybe uh, about a year or two ago. Here was this book; it was 20 years old or so, and yet was a fantastic resource. So that's what I mean. Don't don't be rigidly tied down to what people call dated material. The latest and the greatest book out there isn't always the best book for you, to be sure. The Torah is 3,500 years old, and it is the best book for us. Point taken? Okay. So, um, with that in mind, it's my desire that these particular studies that I write for the people will serve the reader in a somewhat balanced manner. Not too simple, not too, not just um, you know chicken soup for the soul, not just... Uh, very clever maxims for people to kind of, um, uh, uh, you know, put on their refrigerator uh, or or something like that. But rather, I want them I want them to be balanced. I want them to be not too trivial, but I don't want them to be information overload either. I don't want you to have to have a um, a doctor's degree in theology uh, or a master's degree in in divinity to be able to understand what I write. I don't write for the scholar. But yet I don't write for the uh, sixth grader either. It's somewhere in the middle, um, you know, just enough to, to challenge us. So hopefully that's where I will hit the mark as I kind of use the shotgun approach and broadly uh, fire out at my reading and my listening audience. That being said, it is my sincere wish that the Holy One will be gracious unto you as you sincerely seek a deeper, more meaningful relationship to him, of course, through his son and through the pages of his word. Okay, something I'm also going to recommend as I do these studies is I recommend that you obtain the written notes to study with alongside of the audio notes that I'm recording week after week to podcasts. How can you obtain the written notes? Very simply, go to our website at grafted.com, click on the commentaries link right on the front page, and you can then navigate to the left and you'll see where it says weekly portions. From there, you will have access always to every single Torah portion in the five books of Moses. All 54 portions are contained there in PDF document, and that's to ensure that uh, when you print it or when you view it on your computer, that it will always look the same worldwide because the PDF document format allows for me to um, uh, retain the formatting that I use when I write the original commentaries. Sometimes I include Hebrew words in the... um, study sometimes some Greek or other languages may show up or there are certain places where it's highlighted or bolded or italicized and and different colors are used and things like that underlining whatever it is I'm using to emphasize my point by using PDF document uh, which is Adobe uh, program and and Adobe uh, Adobe readers a free download A-D-O-B-E Adobe you can do a Google search for it and download it for free or you can click on the link from our own website anyway Download the Adobe Reader, and whether you're using a Mac or a PC, then you should be able to read my commentaries. And when you print them out, they'll look identical to what you're seeing on your screen. So I recommend you get the written notes. Go right to our website and gain them from there. Okay? That being said, let's move into the commentary. We're near the bottom of page one, starting with the first paragraph entitled, The Signature of God. 
The first few words in the Torah are so simple, yet so profound. In the beginning, God. We could leave it right there. And and that's enough to occupy man's curiosity for the rest of his life. In the beginning, God. I grew up in a religious home. And I've always liked to visit um, other churches and other synagogues uh, when I was growing up. I still do now to this day. Even though I'm in my 40s, I like to visit other religious institutions because I like to see what God is doing at other places. I can remember growing up listening to rabbis and preachers' sermons using the first four words of our parasha for the Shabbat of Breshit. In the beginning, God as I said, there's quite a bit to uh, contemplate within that first pasik, that first verse. And these these godly men, they always told me that there's more there than meets the eye. And so that's why I'm fascinated by the first pasik. In fact, some say that the opening phrase pretty much sums up the foundation and purpose for our existence. In the beginning, God... In, in these first two sections of my own commentary, I want to examine some of the details for the creation perspective, okay? Here we have it. In the beginning, God. Notice that were it not for this foundational starting point, then we humans would be left with very little direction in our lives. You see, unlike that of Hashem, our existence is finite. We are not infinite. We haven't existed from the beginning. Only God has existed from the beginning. We have beginnings, and we need to be able to trace our simple beginnings to something substantial. We need to be anchored in something that is beyond us, that is greater than us. And so we need to find ourselves at the beginning with God by, by embracing God, by, by um, understanding that God was there at the beginning, and God is the one who gives us our beginnings. You see... What I'm talking about is, is not necessarily um, confined to Christian circles. Actually, I've found that even the non-believing scientists espouse to this fact by the presence of their various evolutionary models that all do what? They purport a beginning somewhere out there, you know, the Big Bang. They, they, they can't simply accept that, that everything was always here from, the, from, the, from eternity past. Um... They, they always seem to purport that, you know, everything started from a simple state and worked its way to where we are now. You know, the amoeba, you know, evolved and crawled out of the primordial, primordial soup and, and, and then it grew legs and it grew intelligence and, you know, and then I started swinging from trees and now here I am sitting in front of my, uh, in front of my MacBook um, recording this commentary, you know, using sophisticated techno technological equipment from Apple and, you know, this, this uh, microphone that I have in front of my face. Wow, that's what the scientists want me to believe, right? That all of this evolved. But still, they cannot get over the fact that it had to start from somewhere. So there was this, there was this, there was this mass, and then it grew, and then it exploded, and, you know, and blah, 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 and on and on they go. Contrary to you know the scientific dilemma of where everything came from, when we read here in the Torah that in the beginning God, we have an authoritative groundwork laid. By beginning with Hashem, the authoritative groundwork is laid whereby we can, can honestly and truthfully begin to build solid purpose for our existence, even as meager tenets of the creation that God has placed us in charge of, to be sure. 
as we're going to soon find out, one of the primary reasons for man's creation was, in fact, to rule over the fish, the birds, the animals, and over all the earth. You can read that in Genesis 1, 26. That's not the only thing we were created to do, don't get me wrong, but that is, that is one of our primary um, uh, functions, why we were created. The earth was created for us. We are to rule over it, to subdue it, and to, um, uh, uh, you know, to master it. Not to, not to, not to harm it and to rape it and to pervert it, but uh, God gave the earth to us. Now, modern scientists again would like for us to reject the idea that there is a higher power other than ourselves, someone that we must ultimately answer to for our moral failures or the decisions that we make from a day-to-day basis. The scientists who who reject God don't want us to read these words here in the book of Genesis because they want us to believe that we are all just some fantastic jumbled mass of what preconceived amino acids that supposedly grew intelligence in the course of a few million years. They don't want us to credit our creation to the higher intelligence known as God, the super intellect who is in charge of everything. That's why they have their scientific um uh, I want to say ideas or, or or theories that suppose that everything's a million years old. Now maybe, maybe, just maybe, the earth is a million years old and that man's uh, history is, is older than we suppose. It still doesn't matter whether... I, now I actually opt for a young earth, just in case you, you're wondering where my position is. I opt for an earth that's not much more than 6,000 or so years old. But... Um, but there are some who say, you know what, the scientific data can't lie. If the scientific data shows that the Earth is a million years old, then who's to say it isn't? I'm, I'm willing to admit that there possibly is a million years of creation in front of us. But it's still creation. God would still have created it. I simply do not espouse to the fact or the theory that um, the Earth simply just you know, evolved out of some big mass of soup, um, you know, Bang, there it is. It doesn't work that way. <laughs> I saw a clever bumper sticker the other day. It was a Christian bumper sticker. And it said, I believe in the Big Bang Theory. And then the next line dropped down and said, God spoke and bang, there it was. Um, that's kind of clever. You know, the scientists don't want to believe in God. Because if we believe in God and give God the credit for this creation, then we have to believe that the moral decisions that we make, as I mentioned, the sin problem, ultimately is also um, resting in the hands of this creator of ours, and we are ultimately responsible for the choices that we make, good or bad. The scientists claim that we have simply evolved and crawled from the primordial, as I mentioned, the primordial soup, into the awareness of being able to scientifically study in depth our own simple beginnings. We're so smart that we started out as monkeys swinging from trees, and now we're smart enough to actually go back and study the monkeys who are still swinging from trees and realize that we're no longer monkeys anymore, right? Wow, we're such smart monkeys. <laughs> yeah, right. Well, I don't believe that. I don't believe we came from monkeys. God created us with intellect because we are created in his image. And the opening verses here in Genesis not only diametrically oppose the hypothesis that we came from monkeys, but that really the verses here in Genesis don't even afford us the luxury of scientific research. God doesn't say, here I am, put me under your petri dish, examine me. Once you've figured me out, then I want you to believe in me. God doesn't do that. He actually, in fact, 
the narrative here in Genesis, it actually takes for granted, when Moshe wrote it, the fact that all things came to be by the power of God without going into any scientific studies to prove it. God could have had Moshe write down the scientific and mathematic formulae um, necessary for us to actually prove the beginnings of everything that we now are able to study. God is that smart. And he could have told Moshe, here's what I want you to write. You know, pages after pages of, of scientific data for us to, to study and actually then go into nature and put our microscopes to work and realize that, wow, the Bible's right. But God doesn't do it that way. He just says, in the beginning, Moshe writes, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then he goes from there. He doesn't even explain who God is. We just, we're just introduced kind, you know, kind of rather suddenly to this person called God. I like it that way. Beginning with Hashem changes our viewpoint from that of scientific observation to one of absolute faith grounded in the word of God. You know, a scientist who refuses to objectively deal with a supernatural creation, in my opinion, is a scientist who refuses to deal with a supernatural God. The creation is supernatural. I, I really do believe that within the, the heart and the spirit of genuine, honest scientists, they, they know that as they study the, the delicate... Uh, framework and the balance of nature they have to conclude there's no way this could have evolved by chance it bears the creator's signature just like a master artist will always put a signature on his work you know I have a again I'll, let's use my computer as an example I have a MacBook sitting in front of me right it's the white model uh, it's very nice it's, an, it's got an Intel processor in it um, you know 2 gigs of RAM um, you know, and it's really, really nice, nice, bright screen. And you know, it's got a keyboard. And 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 what I love about Apple products, at least my Macintosh and my uh, my my G5 in the other room, and my iPod. Um, what I love about Apple products is that they really do just simply work. There's very little configuration involved, very little um, guesswork involved. I just basically plug them in, and they work. And what's really interesting is that because they work so well, Apple wants everyone to know. Now, this is not a plug for Apple, by the way. This is just, I just happen to be a, an Apple aficionado, and, and I prefer using Macintosh products over PC products. Um, but what's nice about Apple products is that because they work, Apple wants everyone to know that they, they are made by Apple. So if I turn my MacBook over and look on the top cover, the, the you know, as I close the MacBook, here is this nice glowing Apple logo right on the cover. Now, why do, I why do you suppose that Apple logo is there? Well, because Apple Incorporated, Steve Jobs and his friends, they want everyone to know that this is a Macintosh computer. It's an Apple, and they're proud of what they've made. Their signature is on their products. Every Apple product you buy has the signature logo, the Apple logo on it. You know, the, the little Apple icon with a bite taken out of it, out of the, um, out of the uh, what is that, out of the uh, right side. Um, they want you to know that this is an Apple product. God, now this is a very poor example, I suppose, poor comparison, Apple computers to God, but, but when God created this universe, <clears throat> his signature is all over everything. Look at the order down to the, the, the very, very smallest level of, of, of the um, 
of the things that we can study under the microscope, even down at the smallest level, the scientists have to admit, there's order here. This could not have simply evolved. The body is, is, is a very wonderful machine. That's a great example I could have used. You know, my Macintosh is a great computer. It's a great MacBook. But eventually it's going to wear out and it's going to fall apart. It's going to cease functioning sooner or later. Hopefully later than sooner. But my point is, is that God created everything and he put his signature into it. And if we will be careful enough to give him credit and look for it, I believe every scientist would have to admit there's a supernatural intellect behind this thing I'm studying. And the book of Genesis is just a, a very thumbnail sketch or a, a glimpse into this uh, the signatures of, of God's. It's, it's a wonderful thing if we will just stop and, and look for it. So, scientists, I believe, are, are uniquely poised to, um, to, to, to know God in a way that uh, maybe those of us who aren't scientists know. It's kind of like the priests of old. They were in a unique position to experience the supernatural power of God on an everyday basis. And scientists, by studying the creation, by studying the universe around us, they also are in a unique position to see God's signature. In fact, the opposite is quite true. By removing God from the equation, what happens is that mankind effectively dulls his own conscience toward the responsibility of his own actions, good or bad. And if there is no God, then ultimately there is no need to answer to anyone but myself. And you know what happens? In this way, the scientist is actually working against himself. Because the Torah teaches that mankind will ultimately destroy himself and become a fool. The mercy of the Holy One offers us an authoritative beginning, complete with purpose and structure for our lives. That's how God designed it. You see, when God begins something, then its destined purpose is made sure. Let's turn now to the Hebrew text of our um, parasha. I want to read the first few pasukim, the first few verses in Genesis here. Again, a seamless transition was provided in Parashat Vazot Habracha, where we read the final few verses of Deuteronomy, and then we seamlessly transitioned into the first few pasukim of Genesis. Let's read those first few verses in Genesis one more time as we um, continue in our study here of this first parasha. The Hebrew reads, Breshit Bara Elohim et Hashemaim ve et Haaretz ve Haaretz Haita Tohu Vavohu ve Choshek al Panei Tahom ve Ruach Elohim Merachefet al Panei Hamaim. It keeps going. It says, Vayomer Elohim Yehi Or Vayehi Or. The English reads, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was unformed and void. Darkness was on the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God hovered over the surface of the water. Then God said, Let there be light. And there was light. End quote. You see, unequivocally, we see the foundation of the universe, spring forth not from some 
supposed Big Bang, not from some some distant hum that just grew into a, a, a power or force. We see it spring forth from the creative handiwork of Hashem's spoken word. We also know from additional sources, such as the rabbinic sources, that it was the creative power of the word that brought the heavens and the earth into existence. I might add that the Bible itself tells us in other places, other than Genesis here, that it was the word of God that was the creative force at work here in the beginning. The Hebrew word bara in the first verse there, Bereshit bara Elohim, the Hebrew word bara, translated as created into the English, it actually means from nothing into something. There was nothing for God to work with. He simply called nothing into existence. There's a Latin equivalent here. It's called ex nihilo. And it seems to be that this particular phrase bara is reserved exclusively for the power of God. In fact, if we study the rest of our Torah, the rest of our Bibles, um, we never find the adversary, we never find angels or any other created beings, this includes man, possessing the same type of creative ability. You see, God's signature is on his work. Only God can call nothing into something. Only God can do that. So, if we're going to be good scientists then we need not speculate the folly of big bangs or pops and whistles. Okay? Just listen to what God is telling us. Like a master artist, his orderly creation bears his signature and his signature alone. In fact, this signature in creation is the very reason why, on Judgment Day, no man will have an excuse for denying the Creator his due honor. And the proof is, is actually written down for us in Romans 1, verses 18 through 25. It's about 30 minutes into the commentary, and it's a good place to call this part A for this section. So we'll go ahead and uh, stop the, um, the podcast right here, call this part A. And when we return, if you have the written notes, we are near the bottom, no, we're about the middle of page 3. We're going to start in part B, with the paragraph entitled, Spiritual Power. Stay with us. <laughs> 